Welcome to episode 79, The Soul of Recovery, Maintaining Integrity Through Spiritual Practices, featuring Gina Tabrizi, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by uh, Gina Tabrizi. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist with over 30 years of experience working um, in the addiction field, and she also has specializations in trauma and codependency. She is uh, the co-founder of Harmony Heals and the uh, one of the directors. And Gina is here today to talk with us about uh, where spirituality and addiction recovery kind of come together, and also how that comes into play with us as professionals when we work with people who have maybe different beliefs than we do or even similar beliefs but they hold them differently uh gina thank you for joining us today hi i'm so happy to be here again and thank you for the invitation and i'm so happy to bring this uh to you it's a a pretty powerful subject that is uh, near and dear to my heart and i know that sometimes it's an area where clinicians may not always know how to tread or tread lightly, so I think it's important to kind of put some um, concepts and, and define spiritual spirituality in terms of how we utilize it in treatment, whether that's someone in the treatment industry as I am or in private practice. I think it'd be very helpful, and like you said, I've been at it for now. This year will be my 34th year <laughs> of practice. I can't believe it, and I, I wear many hats, and another hat that I wear is Chief Clinical Officer at New Directions for Women, which is a, a women's treatment center. And women and children also are invited in uh, to recover with us. So that's, that's just a little bit of the background. Um, thank you, Gina. So I know you have specializations also in EMDR. Tell me more just about how, given your background, you see uh, trauma and spirituality and addiction kind of all coming together. I have been working with clients with trauma from the very beginning, and I always say that addiction is trauma, and so if you never knew that you had it, you have it now. And so a lot of clients, of course, enter into any kind of recovery or therapy with a lot of denial around how trauma has impacted their life. And trauma and addiction very much go hand in hand, and about 85% of the women that we see coming into treatment do suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and have a history of some type of traumatic abuse. I do go beyond and broaden the concept of trauma because so many people come to therapy identifying with the feelings of shame and guilt, uh, the feeling of being hypervigilant or mistrusting, and not having an identifiable trauma in their life, whether they've denied it, forgotten it, it's been repressed uh, to them or not. But for many people, it's because they experienced something that felt traumatic to them, but it wasn't by definition a traumatic event like a catastrophic event or a sexual assault or physical abuse, things of that nature, right? So I like to broaden the concept and say trauma is any time you experience that one of your needs went unmet. So any of your basic needs, biological needs, but any of your emotional needs as well, because being abandoned can be experienced 
as trauma. Being neglected can be experienced as trauma. Being ignored can be experienced as trauma. Being in a family where other people are seen and heard, but you're not. You're not valued. You're not held. You're not regarded. You didn't receive unconditional love and assurance from your caregivers, then that per person can lead to feelings of self-loathing and a lack of self-worth and shame. And those are kind of core principles with people who actually experience um, traumatic events that they have recollection of, you know, and can speak to it in, in specific terms. So I didn't know, you know, if in that genre, of course, people that suffer from trauma use substances to fill the hole and the void that is left by the feelings of shame and self-loathing and lack of self-worth and addictions I say is a perfect marriage for that because it allows them to escape from that reality and from the uncomfortable and painful experience of sitting in their own body and trauma like no other experience leaves a visceral uh, response and so as you know many people have heard and also the book is written the body remembers there is that experience of having the feeling of trauma on a cellular level in your body and so there's certain things that just don't touch that experience and so through the years of doing a lot of work and being a very eclectic in my approach but certainly leaning into psychodynamic experiential i'm also a psychodramatist and hypnotherapist, EMDR certified, uh, PM Melody trained, et cetera, et cetera, I kept pulling all these resources that are very dynamic and very alive in terms of um, tackling the traumas, what I'm going to say, and get to the root of it versus the more evidence-based current practices of like CBT. And these practices, of course, and now ACT, which is now an offshoot of that, is dealing with the thought process more around than the experiential, visceral, physical process of the trauma. And I think you need all of it. And so I think when you just lean into one genre of therapy and just focusing on the thought process around the distortion, around how we've internalized these things, then you miss the ability to release the physical, the physicality of it, and also the spirituality around it. As you're talking about it, I can hear kind of the interplay of all these different uh, approaches to therapy, you know, as you mentioned, like CBT, but also you're really fundamentally also talking about attachment and how all of these things are kind of coming together. So when you see this foundation often of addiction rooted in trauma, how do you see in your work spirituality be a critical component of that recovery? So one of the definitions that I had um, visited about spirituality and that I pulled um, from uh, goes like this. Spirituality is about responding to the deepest questions posed by an individual's existence with their whole heart. And if you listen to that, that's what, you know, in our world, we probably call it existentialism, right? And the existential or universal truth of, you know, finding oneself, right? So posing those deep questions to oneself, what happens whenever you have a void is you're looking for something to seek to fill that and to relieve you of that pain. And so spirituality is at its root meant to do that. It's a process of people seeking and looking for that deeper questioning um, within themselves, right? And responding to those questions with their whole heart. 
And so one of the things in most programs of recovery is, you know, the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is probably the most familiar program to any layperson out there or clinician even, is they have the concept, which is the 12 steps of the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in their third step, it says, I made a decision to turn our, my will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. What happens here is that you're asking the person to not only fearlessly search within themselves, but to open up to the possibility of surrendering to some type of healing. And where this becomes difficult are people who don't have a spiritual foundation, who are maybe against religion or religiosity, maybe they're agnostic, maybe they're atheist. And so one of the ways that, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics and all the anonymous programs deal with this is by saying the God as we understood him. And when we're working spiritually with the patients, what we're saying is from a psychological perspective, this is you trying to affect self-actualize and find your higher self and your highest self in its highest form. So it can be you, it can be a tree, it can be God, it can be the God that you grew up with. And I always say to my patients, surrender to the God of recovery, not addiction. So they fearlessly sought within themselves answers, but they chose substances to answer those questions. And the answers never came. More trouble came, more conflict came, more losses came, more injury came, more pain came with surrendering to the, the addiction. So spirituality opens a world of teaching an addict who's powerless over this disease, who's constantly in conflict with obsessive thoughts racing through their mind, thinking about how they're getting their next fix, their next high, and how they're going to get out of this pain is to teach them to surrender to a concept where they can feel some freedom at not chasing that thing, whatever that thing is. And it's the God of recovery, as I call it, which means just dedicating yourself to a process of believing that there is a way to heal. And someone that walks into the door of any therapist's office, really you can consider that a spiritual act. I'm coming into a space with the possibility and the hope of believing that I can heal through this process and in this process, and I'm surrendering to it, if that makes sense. So it's a, it's a concept of looking at the traditional training of psychotherapists where we kind of keep any religion and any spiritual beliefs separate, yet we stay open to and encompass and support patients utilizing whatever spiritual support systems are available to them if that's what works. So we always say do what works, right, and bring that into the room. So this is kind of opening the door in questioning and asking patients to look a little deeper that even if it's a door that they've never opened before, are they willing to open a door to think about um, the ways in which they can integrate spirituality, responding to the deepest questions posed by the individual's existence with their whole heart within themselves. And that deep inquiry happens in therapy, and that deep inquiry can happen in AA, and that deep inquiry can happen at Sunday service, you know. And so those uh, ideas of how you bring in spirituality with not having it become something that starts to sound like religiosity or some kind of cult or some kind of belief that might put the patient 
you know, more at a disadvantage or make them feel more guarded in terms of, of opening and accepting to what spirituality could mean to them. It's it's interesting example that you gave, you know, about someone walking into the therapy room. And, I, and I've thought about that myself and and really this the sense of um, embracing the unknown that it takes to walk into a therapist or counselor's office and not know somebody and be like, gosh, I hope this this helps. And that it's not all that different than walking into a temple or to a church or wherever it is and seeking connection and clarity and healing. Um, and then there's right. also this idea of the power differential, which to me harkens back to that very tenant in 12 step about powerlessness. So there's this really interesting power differential that comes up in therapy as well. And, and I, I want you to speak kind of how you see that when you have, I'd say more, more often than not a clinician and a client sitting in the same room and having potentially very, very different, or maybe even slightly different spiritual beliefs. Like how to how to approach that? Right. So our role always is to be open, receptive, and accepting of whatever is there without prejudice and without judgment. And we all enter a room with our own belief systems and our own idiosyncrasies and our own judgments and maybe areas of ourself where we haven't fully explored what we don't know we don't know either. And so it really challenges a clinician who's maybe sitting in the room with, a, I'm going to say, a preferred belief system to have someone come in who is so contrary to that. And I've noticed what happens in, in the treatment world a lot is it became a world of do as I say, not as I do. And we started to have this disconnect between the self-care of the staff, um, whatever their process of self-care was, including spirituality and including any other forms of self-care, mindfulness practices, or whether they go to therapy, or whether they, you know, uh, sit and meditate, whatever their thing is, versus the expected treatment of the client. And so our job, too, is to mirror that self-care. So if we're saying to a patient to explore all of the deep questionings of their soul and their psyche and, and look for those answers and be open to the answers and the possibility, we also have to be open to that there's another way. One of the things that AA never meant to do, and it, and it is in the big book, and Bill Wilson talks about how it was never intended to be something that was uh, preached as this is for everybody and everybody should do this and this is the only way um, that gives that kind of like a cult-like feel to it. He, he believed that if you started to push people into an ideology where there's only this way and this is the only way to do it, that it would do a disservice to them exploring really their truest, highest calling of self and their spiritual self and their ability to self-actualize and discover for self what is the best way for me to become the person that, you know, I'm meant to become or that I want to become. And that's no different than the clinician in the room starting to explore the type of clinician that they're to become is to be in acceptance of whatever comes in the room. And when it's very different from who you are, um, from a religious or spiritual perspective, it's saying, what about this do I feel that's raising flags within me or is causing some discomfort or is reminding me of what? And am I able to look at it, work through it, so that I don't reject it in the client just because I have a personal bias towards it, if that makes sense? So 
it's a lot to do with our self-care, how we might react to a patient's behavior or to their ideology at the time or even to their emotional um, dysregulation, depending on how well we are or aren't taking care of ourselves, you know, and our behavior speaks loudest about our own philosophy of life. So how are we behaving is how I like to say, how are we behaving as treatment providers? How are we behaving as clinicians? And are we taking that personal inventory too, you know? And one of the things that I've discovered through, you know, even getting ready for this talk, and I have done this talk a couple of times in, in different forms, is to know that there's many different studies that come out that have shown that spirituality and participating in it has a great impact in the healing of our clients. And so um, one in particular, um, I'll quote it, is an increased spiritual participation led to a more optimistic worldview, greater perceived social support, higher resilience to stress, and lower levels of anxiety. And that's a study in the year 2000, Cardini et al. 2000. my thought around that is we are always trying to pull resources as clinicians to give to our patients about how to be more optimistic when they come from that negative self-talk and self-doubt and self-loathing, how to reduce levels of anxiety is a very common experience that, that most clinicians will hear of on a daily basis, right? And there's, again, in program as well, the reason that I will even emphasize or bring up the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is because it has a lot to do with utilizing those spiritual principles. And there's other studies that have shown that, you know, spiritual awakening as a result of AA involvement were nearly four times more likely to be abstinent three years post-treatment. So these were studies that were done intentionally with clients in treatment to, to see and to advocate for what Spiritual practices and mindful practices show best results for clients post-treatment. And so if you're a person who, you know, isn't open to the concept of AA, that's okay. Or if you're not open to the concept of someone attending a Christian church or Buddhist temple or, or whatever that thing is, it's to try to pull and understand that we've got lots and lots of information to tell us that this is something that so simply can be introduced to a patient and can be life-changing for them. And it's something that happens outside the therapy room. It doesn't have to happen with you. It's not confined to us guiding them necessarily into that or giving them that tool. It's literally offering a suggestion and staying open to that. And so um, one thing that I saw too was one study that of a six-month follow-up higher scores on several measures of spirituality predicted higher abstinence six months out post-follow-up. And there's, we're hard-pressed in the addiction treatment world to find those kind of statistics in terms of recovery. So if you look at it, it almost looks like it's a losing battle because the recidivism rate and rate of relapse, of course, is a chronic problem in the treatment of clients. So it lends us to be more hopeful in terms of trying to introduce that. And even uh, the American Psychological Association has recommended that clinicians respect clients' religious and or spiritual beliefs and values. And JCO, which is the Joint Commission on Accreditation, mandates routine assessment of spiritual needs of clients, how patients use their spiritual coping and how their spiritual practices give meaning to their life. So a lot of this points to spirituality as an anecdote 
to addiction. And so hence the, the point, you know, the point of the talk is the soul of recovery is the spirit of recovery. It's guiding patients and not losing our rhythm and doing the mechanics of treatment and remembering that there's these other tools that are, are available to everyone that are for free, which is even better <laughs> for them to access, you know, uh, into their recovery program and into their healing, whether they're recovering from an addiction or not. I mean, this is good stuff for someone suffering from anxiety or depression or any number of, of you know, mental health disorders as well. It's, it's really fundamental to what it means to be human, uh, to have these questions about, you know, why are we here or why did this thing happen to that person and not me or why did it happen to me? And that that is really the backbone, like you said, these questions, the backbone of spirituality. And I can see what you're saying in the research you're citing, because to me, it's it's like what we what we read and what we see about uh, New Year's resolutions. That when it's like this thing we're going to try yeah. for a short amount of time, it doesn't stick. But yeah. if we make it this deep change, you know, instead of saying like, well, I need to eat healthier. If we actually came up with deep reasons that were guiding that behavior, we'd be much more likely to maintain it when we can really explain it. And and I can hear that. And I, I like also that you brought up AA and the 12 step tenant. Cause I, I know I've worked with clients before that, um, because 12 step coming out of the gate was a, you know, quote unquote Christian model. At least that's the way that it, uh-huh. it was seen. I think there's still a carryover over of that of like, how do we integrate a non-Christian approach to recovery? And what does someone who does not, um, does not align with Christianity, how do they involve themselves in 12 step? And that's certainly a conversation that I've had repeatedly of like different approaches for it. I had it last week, you know, it's, it's a pretty heavy thing and it's scary. I think for someone to walk into a room and feel like, uh Oh, you know, there's this really big tenant and I reject it. Right. And there's so many different ways, you know, any type of mindfulness practices such as prayer, yoga, meditation, um, all impact our mood and impact the physiology of our brain similarly. And so AA is just one of those mindfulness practices, you know, the practices of our program are explicitly spiritual. Um, because they encompass prayer and meditation as well. But there is now so many recovery programs, rational recovery, smart recovery, refuge recovery, the Buddhist way through the 12 steps. There's alternate programs now that don't necessarily have within the dialogue of God because sometimes God just people are offended by that concept when it's a concept that is not in their belief system whatsoever or is not amenable to them and that's okay. But it's all of these other practices, contemplation, yoga, Zen, and transcendental meditation, they all have physiological impact on the brain. I mean, yoga, for example, increases GABA, which improves the mood. I mean, we're always doing things by changing our diets and our food with supplements, but exercise is one of the most powerful things uh, to transform us physiologically and to increase those feel-good, happy neurotransmitters in the brain. So practicing these things is not just because you're bringing in a concept of God or you're, you know, adhering to some religious uh, affiliation that maybe is not for you whatsoever. There's these other free-form types of mindfulness practices that are just as powerful and have for been studied for decades now you know, to show, and there's so much valuable research about 
uh, mindfulness practices, which is basically just, you know, a state of being or living, you know, being at peace with oneself and in the world. It's a heightened sense of your surroundings with a focus on the present. And a lot of it originates from traditions from the Buddhist and the Taoist and the yogic tradition. And you're getting, you know, I think it's like a twofer. You're getting like food for the mind, peace of mind. You're increasing the feel good, you know, transmitters in the brain, but you're also getting physical release. When we go back to talking about trauma and addiction and the wreckage that it does to the body, there has to be time and healing for all of those mechanisms that have been filled with toxins, toxicity, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual toxicity. That's what's been being put into the body when somebody is in the ravages of addiction or in trauma. These are really simple ways that are always available to you to begin to heal those things, and you have to know that that healing is possible. Nothing happens without someone having that belief system. You can bang it over their head with a drum, but they're not going to accept it. And, of course, that old adage that, you know, bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And some of the ways with working with clients and using mindfulness practices, they have some of the best aha moments that they ever have. You know, sometimes it's not in the therapy room where that's going to occur or with a skilled, you know, clinician or your sponsor or whomever. Sometimes it's going to be you on the yoga mat, you know, or sometimes it's going to be you having a peaceful 10 minutes in the morning to meditate and utilizing contrary action and saying, I'm willing to do today something that I wasn't willing to do, you know, yesterday. Yesterday I woke up with a bottle in my hand and it had a death grip on it, you know, and it, yoga has become so incredibly popular, um, popular and widely respected, and it's everywhere. Like every drop of a dime, you see a yoga studio, and a lot has to do with that people are starting to embrace and understand what it brings to them, not only spirituality and meditation, but physically, physical strength, mindfulness, and focus, which are things we could all use just in dealing with getting through our day and dealing with parenting our children, having conversations with our aging parents or, you know, running board meetings or whatever it is that we're doing that we need to find an ability to center ourselves, you know, and prior to the, you know, prior to sitting here with Beth and I, we had like a 40 minute glitch in our, in our internet and connectivity and all that. And you could take that and move as a stressor and not be able to show up to do what you need to do. And, you know, she was very mindful of reminding me and sitting and, and asking that we both take a breath and take a minute and set our attention before we began to speak. That's a mindfulness practice. And just doing that small thing shifts from feeling the stressor and the discomfort of things not happening the way that I want them to happen to suddenly going, wow, this feels really good. I can do this. And so those mindful practices, whether it's the meditation or the yoga or whether it's AA, whether it's prayer, whatever it is, for anyone out there who's never tried that, brings that, brings that immediate sense of presence and comfort. And research demonstrates, like in particular, yoga can positively affect the mood and decrease anxiety by elevating GABA levels by like 27%. So why wouldn't you do that, you know? There's so much research showing that we can use medication and there is a place for medication in our world, but our medication comes with so many, many, many side effects. 
And so the efficacy of that, when you measure it to the side effects for some people, has not been a positive and possible experience for them. So then you have to find other ways to regenerate, rejuvenate, and heal the brain when medication maybe is not an option for you, you know, as, as for some people. I think yeah. as you're talking about this, it, it hits on a lot of points, and I can even hear as you talk about it, kind of your own journey and trying to be flexible with these different ideas and trying to accept the, the, yeah. the way you see it and the belief system that you hold while still leaving room for the other to be valid. And I think that's where there's a space in the, in the room that I think really uncomfortable. Um, And I think it may often be scary for both clients and clinicians to bring up of like, so, so how do you interpret that? What does that mean when something like that happens or that that thing happened to you and that what you're really talking about is spirituality, but sometimes it's scary to actually say those words because it's so personal. I think, too, with clients who have experienced any trauma, and I want to hear what your thought was around that, too, um, that is very, very true of them. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and part of it is that, that fear of if I'm vulnerable, what's going to be the consequence? And basically, I don't want to get wounded again. But that for all of us, right. spirituality is something that is so deeply personal. And I remember um, back in my master's program, someone had done one of the one of the clinicians, a budding clinician like all of us. Um, had done this project and she had these cards that she handed out and she called them the four rooms. And she talked about that all of us have physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. And what is our relationship with each of these rooms in our house? And I remember someone saying, well, I don't feel like I have a fourth room and fourth room being spiritual. And it was a really interesting conversation because it's something again, that is just so deeply personal. Um, so tell me in your role as a director and having overseen programs, so you're working with these clinicians that are bringing themselves into the room. So they have their own personal belief systems about spirituality, the things that maybe they've embraced or maybe they have yet to explore. How do you recommend that they work through some of that and create a safe space for clients to be able to explore what's coming up for the client? I think everything at its center and healing comes from willingness. And so when a person is willing to grow, to expand thought, to look into the possibility of healing or invite the possibility of healing, including the clinician, there has to be a willingness and that willingness comes with self-reflection. If I am willing to look in the mirror and look at my own belief systems and take my own inventory, so in that there's dialogue amongst us, right, as the clinicians of our clinical beliefs and our thought process, especially when someone in treatment or a patient comes up with a different belief system that maybe we, we are not aligned with, we haven't heard, or we find different, or maybe even odd or eccentric, is to begin to start to take those mindful breaths and use the practice of mindfulness and meditation in that moment to open the door of willingness and acceptance and empathy because I don't have to understand your belief to have acceptance of it and I don't have to understand you to empathize with you but at my core I need to bring those principles into the room if I'm going to work with you in whatever your belief systems are and whatever you're pulling from for your own healing 
because your healing is unique to you and no matter how I may want to view it and what tools I may want to give you, you may not decide to use all the tools I have available to you. And you might find a different tool that I hadn't even thought of that's very critical in your healing. And so in that respect, you become more like the cheerleader for the patient versus the guide or the mentor or the supporter or the therapist is you become right on, you know, I'm so glad you found that for yourself. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's amazing. And allowing yourself to let them to find that path as long as you can see in the patient that what they're doing is adding to the healing and to the growth, to the self-exploration and to them taking accountability. Obviously, if it's a tool they're using to avoid and ignore and to, you know, uh, repress more of their process, then it's something that we're always going to have to confront and address. But to have an open dialogue about our client's belief as well as our own without judgment is really important. And I know recently for us, there's been conversations and dialogues because we've opened up a whole new world around the transgender community and all of the many layers and language involved, which many of us had not had particular training in or understanding of. And so as a staff, we just sat down and began to dialogue. What is our thought process around? What are our questions about? What is it that we're needing to bring in some comfort to be able to support any human, whatever that human being is, and this just being a new culture that we're now just learning about. And understanding cultural beliefs and values and practices is essential, you know, especially if it's different from our own, for us to be able to guide someone as, as they're integrating, right? Integrating into whatever it is, into a recovery program or healing from depression or healing from their trauma. So part of it is how are we practicing spiritual principles ourselves and how do we share and incorporate that with our clients if we truly are coming from the lens of willingness and acceptance. And it's kind of like a daily check-in. So one of the things I strongly advocate for is supervision and team meetings, even when and if everybody's licensed and you don't necessarily need a supervisor signing off on something, you need that pool and that resource for yourself to have that accountability factor, which is so critical in, in the recovery circles because a lot of the therapists and or counselors are also in recovery themselves. And so, as I had mentioned earlier about that self-care piece, if I'm practicing self-care, I'm going to be way more open and accepting to some new information or a new belief system or a new culture or a new nuance that I hadn't seen. Like, wow, I've never seen that before in a client. I'm not sure what to do with that. And part of that is, you know, the acceptance and, and self-reflection. But if you have a team and people to pull from and to support you while you kind of navigate those waters for yourself and we have to check ourselves in terms of whatever personal biases we have and really there's a place to say this particular type of patient this particular population and you know unfortunately often it's said that you know many therapists don't want to work with a particular type of disorder and so just acknowledging that and being aware of that you know, because when one of the things, too, that I've heard in program is you tell the truth and you, and you share with others and you confront, accept if to do so causes more harm. 
So the same should be said for clinicians. Like, I am open to working with this patient, but I am so far from what their belief system is, I can't even wrap my brain around it. And maybe it's something that is distasteful to me for whatever reason, or I have, you know, uh, intense judgment about. Then it's for us to pull from those resources and those pool of people on our team to say, I may not be the right fit for this client because the kindest thing you could do is then to express to the client, I think I need to refer you to someone who really understands and truly has a grasp of where you're at, what you're struggling with, and what your core beliefs are that could help you in this particular situation to navigate it. And sometimes we forget. I, I think there's so much responsibility in what you're talking about and so much honor in a client's process. Um, and I, I really, um, I really connect with what you're saying because going back to that idea of like also kind of powerlessness in therapy and what it's like for clients yeah. sometimes, I, uh, there's an experience that is coming to my mind that I had a number of years ago. Um, I work a lot with adolescents and with young adults. And so I connected with a colleague that also worked with teens and the colleague came from a very strict, um, uh, religious background and had very, uh, defined views about different things like premarital sex. And the colleague recounted the situation where a young client an adolescent shared that, that the person had engaged in premarital sex and the clinician and this is a very clear blind spot, the clinician responded by saying something like, so you you violated your religion and you expected that that was going to be okay. And it was, and it was even more graphic than that. And I remember in the moment, just kind of like this, this um, catch in my throat of like, oh my gosh. And it was a perfect example, I think, of, of what can go wrong when we're not aware that it's one story that we carry and that it's just as valid as the other client, as the other person's story, um, always, but particularly in the context of therapy. And I, years later, I still remember that circumstance and I'm just imagining that client and how painful that must have been to talk about this thing that was already really loaded with stigma and then to feel, I think, probably further ashamed of that decision. Um, and that it's a, it's a perfect example of why this topic is really, really important that we are aware as clinicians and do our best because we can't be perfect, but that we do our best to be aware of those blind spots. And I like what you're suggesting and talking about it with a team so that, so that they can say, you need to work through that. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of value in that because we can't always check and check ourselves. And that's, and this field particularly can be very isolating, um, so when you're working, when you're leading a team and even with yourself, what are some things that you recommend specifically in addition to what you've already said, the clinicians do to, um, to work through this in their own self-care, in their own kind of spiritual practice to be at a place where they can stay first and foremost safe for a client that's coming in with something different? So I appreciate so much that example that you gave and it just I just got flooded with so many similar memories as you can imagine through such a long <laughs> um, long career that I've had this far is just remembering moments like that and it you know hits you in your gut like I felt the sinking feeling when you said how you know how it was stated to the client and how they must have experienced shame and really at the core it's our judge it's it's our um, 
ability to not judge, you know, without judgment to enter into the room with a client to hear all of the incredible and sometimes horrific stories that they have to share and to not be able to to do that and to filter that it can be so incredibly damaging. And so I started the concept with all of uh, the staff that I work with to utilize core principles of love, kindness, and compassion. And I say, you know, our, our motto, our clinical motto is love, kindness, and compassion in all things. And I say, if you do not have that and you cannot come to the table with that on any, any given day and any given interaction with a patient, then I want you to tap out. I want you to reach out to another staff member or colleague or peer or whomever is available to you and say, I'm not able to come to the table with these core principles with this patient right now. And I want you to step in so that I may go and self-reflect on what's going on for me. And when we have our team meetings and supervision, which I, I, again, have always gone for for myself, and I always check with other colleagues, even at this stage of my practice, when I'm like, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm being triggered by something, and I can tell, and I want to keep it out of the room. And then I invite the staff to do the same thing, and they can process with us, but I'm always encouraging, look, this might be something you go back to therapy for. If you're in a program of recovery, maybe go talk to your sponsor. If you have a pastor that you trust, whoever your mentors are, whoever your people are that you can talk to about and find that sounding board, none of us is an island, and we're not meant to be. And how we practice is we're leading by example to those patients. So how we're practicing those spiritual principles, how are we sharing it and how we're incorporating with our clients, we have to be role modeling for ourselves. So we have to take those personal inventories. And, you know, like some some of my friends always say, you got to hit your knees, which is how they do, you know, prayer. And for me, it's getting up in the morning and having a few minutes of self-reflection meditation and then going into uh, affirmation books where I start to center myself before I ever show up for work. And one of the things I negotiated prior to taking on really this big responsibility, so I have the practice and the counseling center, which is Harmony Heals, and then I have the treatment center, which is New Directions. And what I did was I said I will not show up anywhere before I hit the gym because gym is my church. And I explained to them there is so much value to exercise. It goes beyond anything. And I am in recovery for depression and I'm in recovery for codependency and I'm in recovery for cancer. And my body is very critical aspect of my healing and of my work. And without that temple, I don't exist. So I need to take care of it. So it was not an easy thing to state out loud, look, I will not show up. I need to have hours be around you know, going to my gym because that's my church. And what I've discovered is the gym, which is another mindfulness practice I didn't mention earlier, exercise in and of itself, there's a secondary gain to it. And it's the socialization component and the feeling of connectedness to others that some people might not understand, but somebody with depression desperately needs. And they may not be able to find that, you know, in other settings, and they may not have the courage to go to a support group or go outside, but maybe you can get them to go to take a class, a dance class or a gym class or something to that, you know, something of that nature. And so 
we have to set intentions daily. We have to do our own inventory. We have to be mindful. And it is a daily practice. It's not just something you do once a month or go, oh, well, I hope this works. And I hope this will feed my soul for the rest of the month to deal with all these traumatized clients that I'm going to be dealing with. If you're working with trauma and addiction, and like I said, addiction is trauma, you're working with trauma. And if you're working with codependency, you're working with a whole other animal of trauma. And so if you are not on a daily refueling yourself, it's like running a gas, you know, a car on empty without gas and thinking that the car is going to keep running. You're depleting your body, your mind of what it needs so that you could be at your optimal. And clinicians are notorious for not practicing self-care. I remember seeing recently on Facebook, somebody's got this, like one of those memes going around that's really funny and it shows a picture of a therapist preaching to the client self-care, but the therapist looks like a zombie skeleton of some sort, you know, and everybody's laughing, ha ha ha. I'm like, no, seriously, that's what it looks like. Daily and mindful attention to your breath, just taking time out to breathe during the day. Daily affirmation, daily breath, blessing of your temple is what I call it, or your spirit, like just taking in lots of water, maybe just praying over yourself or whatever you do, or just saying, I bless, you know, I bless this temple and, and my house and my body, and it's here to do the work that I need to do, taking a daily time out. 10 to 15 minutes out of your work every day. Clinicians, especially in private practice, and I know I was guilty of it too, just to save time and to, you know, effectively for better gains financially, you just go back to back, back to back to back to back with patients. And you don't stop and you don't give yourself that time of reflection. Daily evening reflection with affirmations, again, to remind yourself of not what you lost, not what you didn't do right, not what you didn't get, but all of the gains throughout your days, like the things that we tell our patients to do, and those things can be done through journaling or just speaking out loud, we forget. We know all of them, but then we don't pull from those resources, and then we wonder why we get sick or why we're ill, or in my case, why I manifested cancer. Yeah, because it became something that I had to do that was no longer something that I could ignore. Self-care was no longer something that I could leave at the end of my list. And I am a huge fan for bilateral stimulation, which is right at the core of EMDR. It is a premise of EMDR or tapping. For safe place or for affirmations, to do bilateral stimulation is just tapping the opposite side of your body. And so right, left, right, left, well, walking is bilateral stimulation. So I tell my staff all the time, you're upset, walk. Or you're upset, tap. Everyone knows how to do tapping that's here and as you're doing that speak to yourself of words with kindness and love and compassion don't speak to yourself in a terms of what you're not doing what you're not getting right because all you're doing is setting off in your brain the chemistry that says this is all I'm capable of you know and as much as you can ask for help and delegate because all of us need help <laughs> no man's an island we all got to do this together, and where you can delegate things when you feel that your resources are depleted, it's the same thing you tell your patient. You tell them to go to support groups. You tell them to find people that have similar problems or issues or concerns that they do, grief, loss, whatever it may be, addiction, and you tell them, go get support. Be around other people. So why do therapists isolate themselves? Why don't they use and pull from the same resources? So physician heal thyself, as they say, right? That's what comes to mind. Yeah, and and I can hear 
again, even fundamentally crashing into that wave about spirituality, about why are we here? Why are we doing this work? One of my questions for you, so you've outlined kind of these ways that we can, we can take care of ourselves outside the room. Yeah. We can have support. We can take care of ourselves physically. We can engage in our own spiritual practice and, and we can come up with different mindful strategies. I'm curious, what is your advice for somebody that is in the room that they 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 think they're good <laughs> and then the thing comes up and let's say it is of like a spiritual or religious nature or how you're organizing information um you know that a client says and you realize like you are not good <laughs> you are no longer good and you start you know the sweat starts beating on your brow um how do you recommend counselors handle those kind of moments because i think in one way or another they probably all come up with us in little or big ways and and it's really scary <laughs> Yeah, it causes you to kind of hold your breath for a second. Yeah. Those moments, that's the aha moment for the therapist, but it's, you know, more like, uh-oh, you know, it's more like an uh-oh. Where are we now? Where are we headed right now? I love transparency, you know, and I think at, at the root of everything that I'm really sharing with you and talking about you today, authenticity comes to mind as one of the core principles of uh, spirituality. Humility is another one. Um, that I think of and gratitude, and I think I've mentioned through the talk, compassion, these are kind of four key principles that I've come up with in terms that really embody um, spirituality, but authenticity. And one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, going with the resistance. When resistance shows up in the room, whether it's mine or theirs, is to go with it in terms of letting it be transparent and be in the room. And so sometimes the best thing you can do for your patient is to tell on yourself and is to say, you've just now shared something that is enormous, you know, for you and is a big part of your healing, your world, your destruction, whatever it is that they've just shared with you, their big aha moment in the room. And there's a part of me that's just lost my breath. Like it's something, it's an area that I find is, you know, bewildering, you know, it's a, a place I haven't navigated and, and language saying, I don't know what you're talking about, or, oh, dear God, I wish you wouldn't have brought that up, or, Lord, stop talking about that. It's another way of saying that, like, wow, I'm out here on this limb, and yet I, I don't know where you're headed, and there's some discomfort in me and where you are without, you know, so much in those words depending on how connected you are and attached, both the patient to you and you to the patient. You know, it's funny as we think there's not an attachment there on the other end, but there is, you know, is they become part of our story and we become part of theirs. And whether that's short-lived in a session, you know, five sessions with somebody or five years with somebody is a relationship develops there. And in that relationship, we're all looking for transparency and authenticity and there's so much healing and speaking the truth even if it's frightening to do so I don't know where you're headed and when you say that something inside of me just feels you know frightened and then allow the patient to describe to you what they feel hearing you say that you feel frightened and say I know this is something for me to more deeply look at and I want to honor that you shared that with me and that's pretty powerful there's a way for you to stay in the room with that and be authentic with it, kind of celebrating it while being terrified of it at the same time. And there's so many moments in therapy where the greatest thing I could say is, they, you know, what do you think or what should I do? And for me to literally say, I don't know. I really don't know. That was 
you know, so much, and I, I'm floored by what you just shared or what you just put out there, you know, and I'm honored of your courage, and I really don't know. And this is something that slowly we're going to have to navigate together because there's no answer that comes to me in this moment about what that is or isn't and what to do or not do, but I'm sitting with you in the enormity of it. And, you know, write those down because those, you know, pearls of wisdom, <laughs> those are words and language that through the years, you know, that I've learned and, and been able to, to pull from, but literally have said to patients, it was the greatest thing for me to be able to say, I don't know what I don't know. And it's okay that I don't know it. And it's okay that you don't know it, but I want you to know I'm still here and I'm going to sit through the discomfort of what we don't know right now. Adding on what you're saying, that, that harkens back to then attachment, which, you know, as a parent, I can definitely relate with the idea that there are some problems that I just don't have answers for. And (laughs) with a four-year-old, I certainly get a lot of questions, but, but there is a lot of authenticity if you're viewing um, the relationship between therapist and client as this way to have a corrective experience and to heal some of these attachment wounds, that is part of that authenticity. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking about that example, you know, that, that thing that happened a couple of years ago with a fellow clinician yeah. and how different the client's experience would have been if the clinician said, oh, wow, like you just shared uh-huh. this thing that was probably very scary for you. And I can see while you're talking about it, that it's, it's very emotional and I'm having a reaction to it. And I know that you and I, you know, have, have shared this spiritual and religious background. So the stuff's coming up for me, what's coming up for you. And it could have been inviting into the space instead of backing away from. And, and I think there's so much healing in that. And, and that is, you know, going back to the ethos of this talk is about then what you're suggesting with spirituality, that it's that, that moment that helps us answer some of the questions or at least have the courage and the strength to be able to actually ask them out loud and then try to find the answers in the presence of a trusted other. So, so you have these clinicians that are in their own spiritual practice, working alongside clients that, you know, almost invariably are going to be on a different plane because it is so personal. Um, with the time that we have left, what are your other kind of thoughts on how we help support our clients in coming to a place where they feel safe enough to explore those big questions? Because we don't really talk about them that much. You know, I, I remember seeing a cartoon where it shows, um, you know, these boxes and there's this little stick figure that's like, brush teeth, drink coffee, take a shower, fight existential dread and keeps going through these things and it's like a perfect example of the the difficulty in talking about spirituality how do you think we as clinicians can support that in the room and invite clients into that space when it is so vulnerable i think as we were just sharing about being authentic and real in the room the greatest gift that i think that i i give my clients and that i role model for my staff here is just the realness of where i'm at and at any given moment um to be able to come in the room with a client and to invite them to share because i'm willing to share you know a lot of clinicians have been taught to you know limit self-disclosure or keep it as an adjunct to a story or just as part, you know, always to do so if you feel that it's going to benefit the client in some way. But it's a practice to me. It's another mindfulness practice of just self-exploration. When they come into a room and we're talking about we're going to check in today, 
to see where you're at and what you're, how you're feeling, I almost always will throw myself on the sword and say, I got to tell you, this morning was a struggle for me. I, re- I was really challenged to show up here today. I had some really heavy thoughts and feelings, whether that's sadness or depression, or I've had a great loss, or I have an illness. And just by being transparent in that way, it's an immediate invitation for the clients to open. I've noticed that over and over and over and over again. It settles in the room as integrating me into the group or integrating me into the session as one with them on the journey and the path versus as someone sitting in a seat of authority or at some distance from them. And, you know, there's the small tools that we're taught throughout the time. Our body language says a lot about what's happening in the room and how the patient or client's being perceived. And just leaning in or leaning down or reflecting on your face, you know, compassion and care by, by just the expression on your face is so critical instead of being more of a blank slate. And I, I happen to be a very animated person with a very animated expression, I've been told. Like my clients have said, like, you could be a cartoon caricature because I'm just very animated in my expression. So they're always very clear that I'm there with them and that I'm, I'm hearing and experiencing what it is that they're sharing. But I'm also sharing, you know, at, at my soul level and at my core, my truth and my authentic self, not just what's scripted for me to share as a clinician. I'm pulling from those tools and those resources that I need that are so valuable, you know. And spirituality is just one more of those things to not be afraid to say, whatever your truth is, say, you know, I got up this morning and I got on my knees, or I prayed before I came in because I felt very lost, or today I meditated a few minutes before because I've been feeling very anxious. Like, you're not going to tell them your whole story and why you're anxious and your, you know, your four-year-old was up all night, she was throwing up and she has 101 fever and now you're freaked out because you had to leave her with a sitter and now you're here at work, but really you're conflicted because you want to be at home and then you feel like I'm not being a good mother. I mean, you don't got to go all the way to that story. (laughs) If there's some comfort in that for you and you feel like that would totally bring the client closer into the process, then yeah, share it, but that takes time and the knowing, and the knowing the patient and meeting them where they're truly at. But just to say, wow, I was so anxious before I walked in here that I had to stop and take a breath. Well, that's a mindfulness practice. I had to stop and pray, mindfulness and spiritual practice. I had to meditate for a few minutes. I had to remember my positive affirmations and tell myself, I'm not taking on more than I'm capable of, and I'm capable of whatever's in front of me today. So now you're role modeling to them, this is spirituality. It isn't about a religion. It isn't about a belief in God, but it is the God of your understanding, if that's your understanding. But if it's not, it's sitting outside meditating under the, under the tree that we can see right out that window, and that's your divine and spiritual connection to something greater than yourself. Opening the door to the possibility of giving them that opportunity to pull from a resource that you're modeling for them that you're already pulling from. I will tell you that there's been many times that we have found ourselves here um, just in prayer. Like someone will say, I want to pray for you. And I'm like, sure, why not? Whether that's my thing or not, that brings them comfort, then I will embrace them and what brings them comfort. And stand because they're offering healing and something that's healing to them. They're not off, They're not trying to get me to sign up for a cult, right? And so the same thing, you know, do you want to pray? Do you want to meditate? Do you want me to sit with you while we close our eyes for a minute and take some deep breath? 
So we do it with each other as peers and we do it with our clients and bring that always as an available resource that's with us 24-7, not just during this hour, during this group, for this particular segment of the group, if you if you get what I'm meaning, you know, it's always available to you. And the mindfulness is, you know, spirituality, it, mindfulness practices and intervention is uh, basically, they're an antidote to, to addiction. You know, this all-consuming, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-oppressing entity, which is the drug or the drink or whatever, the shopping, the food, you know, that's consuming you. And it's, it's a preventative measure, keeping something undesirable from occurring. It's a treatment, which is a care given to a patient for an illness or injury. It's a path to transformation um, through a dramatic change in form or appearance. And spirituality is a quality that is personally relevant and individually experienced. There is a gentleman that I'll quote and quote his book, which is Incorporating Spirituality and Counseling and Psychotherapy by um, G. Miller and publisher John Wiley and Son, is given the enormous suffering linked to addiction, we can scarcely afford to overlook this relatively untapped source of healing. And lots of articles and lots of research around it. So, you know, clinician heal thyself. Clinician be the first source of spirituality walking in the room with the principles of love, kindness, compassion, and authenticity, opening that door, modeling for our patients that this is an invitation, it's not a requirement, and it is a resource from which we pull that we we are inviting them also to pull from that will always be available to them in and out of the therapeutic room. Very well said. Um, I'm sure you and I could sit and talk about this for, for quite a while, and as you speak on it, it's clear that it's something that you have not only given a lot of time and attention to as as a human being, but clinically to consider yeah. how all of these factors are coming together, you know, whether it's looking at it through the lens of our belief systems and different therapy methods, but then also just this really foundational component. This is what it means to be human. So Gina, you told us about one of the books that you like. Are there other uh, books for our listeners um, or other resources, websites that you feel like can be very centering for a clinician when we're walking into this world that sometimes can seem kind of scary with a client having, you know, even same or different belief systems? Well, I love um, pulling from like daily reflections and books on um, daily affirmations. And I happen to have one. I don't think I had a book the last time we spoke. So it's called Pearls of Wisdom. Um, affirmations for daily living and it's on lulu and i believe now lulu.com l-u-l-u and now i believe it's on amazon as well and so there are many books in the field there's transcendental meditation books and uh, miller i love like i mentioned earlier he has another book of integrating spirituality into treatment resources for practitioners um that's w.r miller and uh, Cook has a book called Addiction and Spirituality. And those are some of the thought leaders, you know, that I've come across in terms of really uh, utilizing mindfulness practices. And then there's, you know, if you're looking specifically like 12-step oriented, then there's the Buddhist way to the, through the 12 steps is really a great one, too, that a lot of people um, like and enjoy. So I just invite you to 
open that, you know, and do a little search on some of those. And if you want to get mine too, what I do with the patients is my book and any other daily affirmation book. Hazelden has so many wonderful um, books and that genre in particular is just open it up to whatever page, you know, not to have a format, but when you open it to read the affirmation and see if it speaks to you and use that as a launching point to connect with the client, allow them in that moment to be able to describe to you where they're at in terms of what their spiritual practices are. Thank you, Gina. And if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? At the um, counseling center, it's Gina at HarmonyHeals.com. And that's my, you know, just my private practice and and personal email. I'm happy for people to get that. Thank you so much, Gina. We really appreciate you being here and sharing some of this knowledge on a topic that um, is, is really foundational to the human experience. Thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate the time. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.